0: episode 18 the mend podcast your host joe Roter, here with the reds fly shop Podcast, and today uh gonna start a new series which i'm really excited about uh it's called wisdom of the guides and it was really inspired by uh me bumping into essentially a used book booth uh frank amato published publishing uh well, they always have a booth uh, across from us at the Washington State Sportsman Show, and they're selling all these just awesome books for next to nothing. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. I went over there and started looking around, and uh, a lot of the books were books I read uh, when I first started guiding and really fell head over here, heels in love with fly fishing. And apparently books aren't as popular as they used to be, which is a tragedy, unfortunately. Um, so anyway, I went over, started flipping through books and, uh, I came across Wisdom of the Guides by Paul Arnold, Rocky Mountain Trout Guides Talk Fly Fishing. And I read this book early on in my guiding, you know, we didn't have Facebook and social media and podcasts and that sort of thing. And the information I got came from accredited authors. And I think it's important, like, as you... As you go to learn, you know, the the source of information you get online is just so critical. Cause you got to wonder, how valid is it? Does somebody know what they're talking about? Or just some dude who happens to have a free internet connection and a cell phone? Because uh, that's all you need to get on the internet anymore. But anyway, I picked up this book, flipped through it, and I just thought it would be a great, uh, series of podcasts of me just kind of hunting and pecking on some of my favorite quotes. And, uh, essentially what Paul Arnold did is, uh, he worked, he had a regular job and career. He wasn't a pro guide, just fell in love with the fly fishing, ended up moving to Dillon, Montana, and, uh, just kind of went around interviewing some of the most well-known guides, you know, throughout the West and, uh, documenting, you know, what he thought were useful, um, bits of wisdom, uh, of the guides. Put them into print and uh, the book was published in 1998. Uh, I think I started uh, reading it in about 2000, um, right when I started guiding. And I just I think a lot of it had an impact on my fishing, my guiding. Um, and aside from being just incredibly technical, uh, there's just some really good um, ethical lessons and points of morality throughout the book by some great old classy dudes that were doing this before. You know, they had a YouTube channel and a Facebook profile and uh an Instagram page to feed, you know, with bragging picks. Uh back then it was just word of mouth, customer experience, guiding, you know, clients, showing them a great time, and hopefully word of mouth will take care of business. So there's still a lot of that today, but I think some of that unfortunately is lost. I mean I, I read through here and and uh there's just some great subjects in the book. But uh I'm not going to read the whole book, but I'm going to pick out uh, each episode. I'll pick out some cool stuff to share with you. And uh, I just love one of the quotes in uh, the introduction here where uh, Paul Arnold says he offers the following advice for those poised to move to Montana. And he says in quotes, The winters are horrible. The whirling disease has killed off all of the trout. And the place is so crowded, you can't find a place to stand at the bar. Probably best if you stay where you are. Nice. Uh, so that's in the introduction. Uh, my, uh, my first subject in here is going to be the late, great Gary LaFontaine, who had uh, such an impact on technical fly fishing. He was most well known for uh, you know, the series of books that he wrote, especially Flies that he wrote in 1981, uh, which is still one of the most relevant pieces of literature on entomology and fly fishing, uh, that there is period. Uh, but he wrote a series of books, had some videos. Uh, he passed away, uh, quite a few years ago. I think that was, uh, in the early two thousands. And, uh, he had a profound impact on the sport. Lots of flies can be attributed to, to Gary and, and just his knowledge. Um, probably most notably the LaFontaine sparkle pupa, one of the greatest emergers of all time. But, uh, Gary's the, the first dude uh, interviewed in here. Uh, I did go and kind of read his obituary because uh, I just thought, hey, that'd be kind of good. I read a couple of his books. But uh, the, the part of the obituary that I liked was, you know, they go through all this stuff, like he did this, he did that. He was amazing. He was a published author, one of the most influential people in the history of fly fishing or modern fly fishing. But then it says, most of all, he fly fished 150 to 200 days a year. And that was it. <laughs> he did all this great stuff, but most of all, he fly-fished 150 to 200 days a year. So Gary LaFontaine is going to be our first subject. Uh, Paul Arnold uh, interviewed him and asked him uh, a big series of questions. And uh, I just want to share some of these with you. Uh, the first question that I picked out was, uh, when did you start guiding? Natural question. And LaFontaine says... Uh, when I grew up, I used to guide in Georgia. That was when I was 9 years old during summer vacations with the family. I guided in the swamps for bass in the Okefenokee for 15 bucks a day. I had my little motorboat, and I'd take people into the swamp to fish. The barber in town sent me quite a bit of business. Later, when I grew up a bit, I guided some in Connecticut, too, on one uh, of... Oh, my gosh... Wascopomac Lake. Wanascopomac Lake. I even practiced that one. Um, that's a good trout lake up in the northwest corner of the state. I did my serious professional guiding in Montana on the Madison and the big hole rivers. So what cool beginnings from a guide? Nine years old, he's motoring guys into the swamp to do some fishing in Georgia. Um, he obviously had a heart for adventure. I just thought that was kind of a cool um, cool piece of history. Uh, I wish I could say I did something awesome like that when I was nine guiding people in the swamps. Uh, yeah, I, I discovered a lot of cool history like that along these guides and their, their, you know, humble guiding pedigrees and, and where they got their start, uh, in this book. I just think there's, there's so much here, but the next question I thought, um, I, I wanted to share with you, was just his question regarding good clients. Uh, that's kind of the subject. And the question was, speaking as a professional guide, what is your favorite kind of client? And we probably all have a slightly different answer. And we might be surprised at his answer. And LaFontaine says, I have people ask me, gee, don't you hate taking out beginners? And he says, no, I love taking out beginners because of their enthusiasm and because you're helping them. And I love taking out experienced anglers, too. I especially like to guide a client who loves to fish, loves to be outdoors. I don't care if they're good fishermen, but I like to guide someone who is going to be excited about the experience. There is nothing worse as a pro guide than getting a cold fish in the boat. I mean, by cold fish, I mean like a client who's just unenthusiastic, There, there, there. They're just kind of there. You feel like you have to check their pulse you know, to see if it goes up when they catch a fish. I think all guides can relate to that. That enthusiasm um, is just contagious throughout the boat, and that positivity that is exuded by an enthusiastic beginner, that positivity is contagious. And, uh, it, it gets into the guide, it gets into the other angler, and it's just so much more fun when you have that energy in the boat. And a quote that uh, a good friend and, and fishing client of mine has is he always says luck is an attitude. And uh, I think that those things are fairly parallel there. and Just saying, yeah, luck's an attitude. Let's go out. Let's have a good day. Let's be enthusiastic about it. See if we can't catch them. And uh, when we have that attitude, we do. We catch them. Um, always believing. So I liked his answer there. Just the, the enthusiasm. Uh, and then the next question was talking about good guides. And, uh, there was one quote in here that I really, really liked. And, uh, it says, what are some of the qualities that make a good guide? Uh, and LaFontaine says, some people should never guide. I love that. Some people should always guide. I love that too. I think that the basis of it is liking people as a guide. You're a psychologist. You have to start off with the idea that you have to find the buttons that are going to make people. these people have an enjoyable day. If that means showing them the insects, if that means explaining the history of the area, talking about the flowers, or pointing out the species of birds going around, that's all part of being a guide. You are not just there for the fishing. You're a host. You're also a representative of that river. And if you don't love the river and can't portray that love to these people, then you've lost Something there too. So guiding is not just catching fish. It's the entire interaction between humans. And I'm going to say humans and nature. I'm going to add that part. Those are my words. So yeah, guiding is uh, It's definitely uh, more well-rounded than just putting people into some fish, teaching them to cast or row in a boat, um, giving them that genuine outdoor experience and helping them not just witness uh, nature, but participate and connect with nature uh, in all ways and be a part of that ecosystem for a day Uh, as a hunter-gatherer, entomologist, bird watcher, angler, all that stuff. But I like what he says. Some people should never guide. It's true. All right. Uh, Next question I found uh, interesting and entertaining. When you guide a fisherman, exactly what are you trying to accomplish? And he says, so similar to my feelings on this, he says, if I can take someone for two or three days, I don't just want to affect his fishing for those two or three days. I want to teach him new methods. I want to introduce him to new flies. I want to change the way he's going to fly fish forever. I'm going to change the way he approaches fish, the way he casts and gets dead drift floats to fish. I want to change the patterns he uses, the methods he uses. I'm even going to change the clothes he wears. I want to change his whole focus of fly fishing and life in general. He's going to go back a different man. His wife isn't going to know who he is. That's a guide right there. And I think that's what a good guide does. He's like any Teacher, in that his impact goes far beyond the time he spends with a student. Couldn't have said that any better myself, Gary. Those are wise words from a wise man. Uh, very, very well put there. I'm even going to change the clothes he wears. That is awesome. Uh, giving people a completely different mindset of pursuing fish on a fly. And uh, he's right in that because. When you get that bug and uh, you apply yourself to it, it can it can change uh, everything about you. Uh, very, very well said. And then we're going to move on to kind of a... I'm going to skip ahead and uh, I'm going to move ahead here to a funny story. And uh, I just love this. Uh, so <laughs> I dream of the opportunity of getting to do something like this someday. And the title of the funny story is called A Poaching Client. And the question is, what's your least favorite kind of client? LaFontaine answers, Definitely the hard driving types who consider the fish as an object is my least favorite client. Let me tell you a quick story. It's fairly well known around West Yellowstone. I was guiding on the Madison. I guided there for four years. In all my years of guiding, I've only had two bad clients. I love to be with people. One of these two bad clients came in, told me his name. Let's just say his name was Stefan. And said, I'm hiring you to be my guide today. I learned to be a world-class skier in one year, and I'm going to be a world-class fisherman in one year. Sounds like a classic asshole to me. Uh, Gary says, I didn't like that. Then he has to take me out to his van and show me a cooler full of dead fish. Nothing wrong with that, I guess, if it's legal. But let's move on. I told him I'd planned to take him to Yellowstone Park because there are plenty of fish, but you can't kill any fish in there, and you obviously want to kill fish. So Gary's trying to accommodate him, go someplace where we can keep some fish. Then I tell him that the fish there are in the 20-inch class. We'll have rising fish, and it's a great classroom. So he says, "Okay, we'll go to the Yellowstone or go to Yellowstone." When we get to Yellowstone, he's mad because I'm switching back and forth between him and his wife. So this was obviously a wading trip. You can't float um, the Madison and Yellowstone National Park. So he's wade fishing guiding, switching back between uh, Stefan the asshole uh, and his wife. And his wife caught a 20 inch fish, and he hasn't. So Stefan's getting a little frustrated. His wife's out fishing. him. Gary's scrambling back and forth between the two. Uh, Gee, I wonder why Gary wasn't paying more attention to Stefan. Okay, and Gary says, if it was my wife, I'd have been tickled pink, but he was jealous. I keep going back and forth between them, and I come back to him, and he is gutting a trout. I say, what are you doing? He says, oh, I had to keep just one to show some people. You can't do that, I tell him. He says, just one. Look, Stefan. I said to him, it's obvious you want to keep fish. So let me take you someplace where you can catch a lot of fish and keep them all. But we have to leave here. He says, okay, but asks if he should keep the fish, he get it. I tell him, definitely, yes, just put it in your cooler. He puts it in his cooler. I'm driving and the cooler's in the back of my truck. We're driving out and we get to the gate and I stop. I get out of the truck, and I walk over to the ranger, point at Stefan and say, I'm turning that man in. He killed a cutthroat trout on the Yellowstone River. Stefan jumps out, and he's trying to get to me. (laughs) Two rangers are holding him back, their feet skidding. Stefan's screaming and yelling. His wife was a nice lady. She was sitting in the truck trying to hold back a laugh. Finally, there was a gap in the screaming and yelling. I looked at him and said, Stefan, does that mean I don't get a tip? His wife cracks up. She couldn't take it any longer. I don't know if they stayed married after that. But that is the client I dislike the most. I hate that kind of client. I don't mind someone being intense. I'm intense. I really want to catch fish. But that doesn't mean I sit there with a clicker saying 28, 29, 30 trout, and measuring everyone and quantifying the experience that is awesome and i love the setup there Stefan asked can i keep this one definitely yes put it in your cooler just perfect bait him in the whole way what a great story uh i got to agree with that too i'm i'm a really intense guide but uh i am so much more just about the the quality of the experience if i can catch fish uh you know, in a ways or means that the angler appreciates more. Maybe that's on dry flies. Uh, Maybe that's using a dry fly and a dropper instead of a bobber. Maybe it's doing a little bit more wade fishing or using a fly that the angler either tied or had a hunch would work. All of that trumps the body count on a fishing trip. All those types of things go together. You know, the process... The nature, the fly, the strategy, all that kind of stuff contributes towards a great day. But I just cracked up at that story. I'm just picturing him, uh, you know, getting accosted by the ranger and Stefan trying to choke Gary and Gary laughing about it the whole time and the guy's wife laughing. Good story. All right. So we're going to get a little bit more technical in nature now. And the question is just a uh, general title of this section. And, again, I'm skipping ahead. Uh And you know what? We're going to jump back. And uh, now we'll go with tackle selection. I I think I want to do some technical stuff because I think there's some, some nuggets in here for you folks. So tackle selection. And the question is, what about tackle and equipment that people show up with? Do they make mistakes in their purchases? And LaFontaine says, 20 years ago, you used to see a lot of bad mistakes. People come out with mismatched outfits grandpa's old rod, worn-out line, and things like that. Now, every rod company out there is making great rods. It's very hard to buy a bad rod. All the lines are great. The leaders are pre-tapered. If anything, these days, especially for weight f- fishing, people often bring too heavy a rod. Most of them come out with a 6 or 7 weight, and you don't need that. My main rod is a three eight, a Sage three eight nine. LL. Classic. I had one of those for many years. That's what I use for all my shallow water nymphing and dry fly fishing. It's an 8 foot 9 inch in a 3 weight. I like a slow rod. There are good rods from other companies too. Like a Scott 4 weight. I'm not aligned with Sage or anybody else. A lot of time with spooky fish, the lighter line and more delicate presentation is going to be an advantage. So if anything, I would say bring a lighter rod. Bring the heavier rod for the boat fishing and for the heavy nymph fishing. But don't be afraid to bring your three weight or two weight along. That's great. I totally agree. Uh, That finesse, and again back to that rod, I currently have a Sage 389 SLT which is just a slightly newer version than that 389LL, but I had a 389LL when I first started guiding about the time this book was written, and uh, loved that rod. Sold it to buy the latest and greatest. Regretted it ever since, because that was my rod, special rod. But his point on just using lighter tackle, and the stealth, and all of that uh, non-sexy part of the fish and drift, the mending, uh, the line feeding, uh, the stealth all that little stuff is just so critical uh you know for you know you know it'd be like trying to do fine finished carpentry with a sledgehammer if you're doing fine finished carpentry and you're trying to get some fish, especially wade fishing where you 're not casting a long ways, use the little rod, play small ball, use a light rod uh I was fishing with a or nymph fishing with my 4-weight yesterday, and uh, I may maybe inspired to start using my 3-weight again. In fact, a 10-foot 3-weight, you know, rods are so good anymore, a 10-foot 3-weight would be a killer Euro-style nymphing rod or a light indicator rod. Uh, but yeah, I liked his two cents there regarding the light tackle stuff. So good input there. And uh, he goes on to uh, have more advice here. And this one's kind of uh, subtitled, Observe Before You Fish. Thought this was totally worth discussion. Question is, if you could require your clients to follow a few basic rules to improve their fishing, what would they be? It's a great question. LaFontaine's response, rule number one for catching more fish is to stop and look. What happens with people is that when they come out west to fish, they're so excited that they want to rush into the water. They splash out through the fish. Fish feed in very, very shallow water. They feed at the lips of pools. They feed on the little gravel shelf coming in on the shallow side. And they snub up right close to the bank. When people step into the water and spook fish, they've spooked not only those fish, but wherever those fish are running to. So it sounds like there's a kind of a chain reaction there. It's a good point. If you've got a nervous, scared fish that runs up into another area, then those fish pick up on that, and they're nervous and scared too. Not a good situation. Scared fish are really tough to catch people. LaFontaine says, The first thing I do to help people catch more fish is to teach them how to stop and watch a stream for 10 minutes before they start casting. A guide walks up and says, okay, do so-and-so. That's because he's been there yesterday and the day before. If I go to a strange piece of water, I will sit down, I'll just watch. It's amazing how much you see before you start fishing. The 10 minutes is going to set the tone for the entire day. That is such a killer piece of advice. We are hurry, hurry, hurry. And, uh... I, especially like when I compare and contrast boat fishing versus waiting, you know, like the guides are there all the time. They're not really needing to sit and absorb that each morning or each day that we go out. But like boat owners, it's funny. I think there's things like you learn just by stepping into the water. What I'm saying about like boat owners versus like waiting boat owners, we often just jump right out of the bank, right into the boat. We never even touch the water. And I think there's just so much value and I can't really put my finger on what it is of standing in that water and feeling, you know, how strong the current is, how cold is the water, having bugs float by you and crawl up on you. I I think that there's a lot to be learned that we really can't put our fingers on each time that we wet our feet and step into a stream. And slowing down and letting that ten minutes, as he says, you know, set the tone for the entire day is Such a logical and profound piece of advice to slow down, listen to the water, feel the current, look for a few bugs, and just soak it in a few minutes before you start tying flies on and thrashing around. Great piece of advice. That, That was his number one piece of advice for how to catch more fish, is observe before you fish. All right, another strategy lesson here for y'all. Uh, this one's titled, Nymphing at Sunrise. Not something we often do. And the question is, what other rules would you have them follow? And the, the, the basis of the question was, what, what are things you can do to help catch more fish? And LaFontaine's answer says, this is a really important rule. In July and August, when the weather is warm, the good nymph fishing is early in the morning at dawn. How many times, and so is the dry fly fishing too oftentimes, people. Uh, how many times have you heard that you don't need to get up early, that trout fishing is gentleman fishing, and the good fishing doesn't start until 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning? You've probably heard that a thousand times, right? It's always wrong. I don't necessarily agree there. Cold weather fishing, midday is great. But he's talking July and August. We'll keep it in context here. The best time of day during warm weather, always, every time, is at dawn. And that's because when there is a shift of the light, you get something called behavioral drift. That's where the insects are going back into cover. They're moving around. They break away. They drift free in the current. You do studies and you see the big spike of the insects going free in the drift. It's not the amount of insects that determine the feeding patterns of trout. It's the amount of insects that are vulnerable, and the insects are vulnerable when they're drifting free at dawn when there is a shift in the light. Dawn isn't a good dry fly time, typically, but it's great nymphing time. So when people are out here in July and August, if they go out at dawn and fish nymphs through the first crack of light, then go back and have breakfast or take a nap, they'll have some of the most spectacular fishing of the trip, the biggest fish and the most fish. And that's true not just in the West, but everywhere. Such wise words. A little different in the Rockies. We, we kind of have a unique deal here uh, in the Yakima River that we have a nocturnal stonefly in July and August called a short wing stone, and the adults are incredibly active at dawn in July and August. Um, but that's somewhat of a unique hatch to us. But uh, what he's saying about the behavioral drift and those nymphs picking up during a light shift is fascinating. And uh, when he's talking about doing studies, uh, let me refer back to that part. He says you do studies and that's when the most insects are going free in the drift. And what they're doing there is they're basically setting up screens uh, that aren't, you know, when when you go out and you, you, you test for bugs or you check for bugs, you might go out and take a screen and shuffle your feet around and kick up a bunch of junk. Uh, well, that's going to show you what's in the river, but it's not going to really show you what nymphs are active. What he's talking about is putting a screen in the river and just seeing what bugs or nymphs drift into that thing on their own. And what he's saying is during light shifts, and that could be uh, probably sun to clouds, I'm guessing. Uh, Maybe clouds to sun. Uh, Usually that doesn't trigger feeding activity, but uh, I think that the bugs are probably more active under a dark sky too if they need to move uh, for whatever reason, be it changing water temperatures, uh, volumes, Uh, insects do move frequently throughout the river. They're probably going to attempt to do so in lower light. So, uh, you get clouds blow in dusk, dawn, especially dawn, what he's saying, there's a large behavioral drift of those nips. Super interesting. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure to remember that, especially when I get back to Montana this summer and get my butt out of bed super early. All right, so he says, anything else on better fishing? Next question. In LaFontaine, just a one-word answer, stealth. One sentence, one word, stealth. He does follow up and say, learn how to creep up on the fish. Don't spook them, bend down, wear dark clothes, don't stomp on the ground. Those are the basic rules. Sort of related to that is avoiding the pressure of other fishermen, particularly guide boats you want to give the river at least a two-hour rest. You don't want to be fishing water that's been pounded by every boat going through. And when you're waiting, it's real easy to do that. In the morning, you fish where they're going to end up. And in the evening, you fish where they started out. So he's just talking about strategically working around other anglers. Sometimes possible, sometimes not. But his one-word answer, stealth. Just, uh, and I'm going to refer, and I'm going to absolutely have to do kind of a book review and summary uh, of Gary Borgers book called presentation. And uh, in that Gary has a really cool quote. I also read that when I first started guiding. It's one of the best books ever written. We don't sell it at Reds. You'll have to jump online, find it somewhere, but that book's called presentation and uh, wisdom of the guides. We don't sell that either at the shop, but uh, jump on Amazon or something like that. You can get it for 15 bucks on Amazon. This book I'm quoting now, but the book presentation, Borger has a quote in there that I don't have in front of me. I'm going to have to go back to this future podcast, but it gives me goosebumps when I read it. But he essentially says, and I'm going to butcher it, but to the trout, fly fishing is not a wily game. It's not a game between man and fish. It's a predator-prey relationship where the trout, the stakes for the trout, mean it escapes with its life. Meaning these trout, they're not playing your silly little game, fishermen. They are trying to live and survive, and taking the wrong fly or exposing themselves to risk equals death. So the trout take this incredibly serious, and we don't have to go super commando and wear face paint and all that, but you might pay attention to that fact that the trout are trying to survive with their life. And you should respect that. Treat the trout uh, as though they, they're surviving with their life. Be a little quieter. Don't stomp. Wear dark clothes. Bend down. Don't cast a shadow on the water. Those are the basic rules LaFontaine says. So, uh, yeah, good advice regarding stealth and strategy there. And uh, yeah, just so much great wisdom here. And then, you know, the other por- portion of this, I'm going to skip quite a bit, but Gary goes through and he has a lot of information on specific flies. Uh, he was a real, uh, yeah, he's a legit entomologist, man. I mean, he knew some more about insects than, I mean, he forgot more about insects than Oliver knew. Uh But there was a couple of other little tips regarding flies, and I thought this one was a really good tip, but there's a lot. I skipped about 10 pages here of interview, but what he talks about is fishing scummy backwaters, and uh, some of this he was talking about personal fishing techniques and stuff that he personally employs, and uh, he says, what are the techniques, and he says, let's talk about streams, because he had uh, mentioned a couple of tips on lakes prior, but we'll stick to rivers, and he said, probably the one different technique I use when guiding is when you come to these scummy backwaters, like on the Big Hole or the Missouri, big backwaters. We have a few of those on the Yakima, and there's grass turning around. Okay, so there's grass floating, or some debris, maybe it's foam scum or something. There's junk in the water in the back, Eddie. The foam is home. Uh, a dry fly coming through there will hook onto a piece of grass or drag almost immediately. And so what he's saying is you throw your dry fly in there, and it drops in there, you're hooking some grass or getting it in that scum, and it, it just hooks junk that's floating around. The guides are not taking full advantage of these, which are probably the hottest spots on the river as they go by in a boat. So the technique which we developed is to come up with a pattern called a slider. The slider has a deer hair head with goop on it, meaning floating, that looks like uh, the carapace uh, or a triceratops dinosaur. And uh, when you pull on it, it slides. It just skates across the water. So essentially he's tying a skating dry fly. Just one that sits right up on the surface tension. So you pound that fly into the back of the backwater and start stripping it across because the fly is skating, it's hopping over the little pieces of grass. It's a very specific fly for a very specific situation, so we get to utilize water that nobody else touches. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the key to guiding. Great advice. Uh, So he's talking about this particular pattern, but um, what I'm understanding here is Fishing those backwaters, uh, because they're tedious, there's debris, there's maybe some foam scum and junk like that. Your fly is constantly picking up little twigs, leaves, sticks, debris, floating grass, you know, like on the Missouri especially. And uh, he's stripping that fly across there, keeping it up on top of the surface tension. And you can do that with a variety of different patterns, but it has to be extremely stiff hackle. Uh, elk hair is better than deer hair typically. Um, deer hair, if you spin it and goop it, you can keep it right up on top. Uh, if you don't know what spawn deer hair head is, just think of like the head of a muddler minnow, and uh, keeping that thing up on top and keeping it skittering. So I just thought his point about just the the scum back, you know, scummy backwaters they call it, but the back eddies uh, being fishy. I just thought that was a a good good tip. Um, a lot of guides don't like them. Get in there and get their fly hung up, snagging the grass, getting the foam, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, if you're do it yourself fisherman, just know the guides are often skipping those spots. So, moving on here, uh, I'm skipping a couple of pages, moving on to nymphing techniques. And he says, Any other techniques? So, this is LaFontaine offering just his wisdom to us. Not a specific question, free information. And uh, what he says is, and I'm going to skip forward, his answer was kind of long. uh, And he goes through some technical advice about how to set up your indicators. But what I took out of this was the other thing we teach people is to set the hook differently when they're nymph fishing. When you strike underwater, you've got to move that fly twice as far, twice as fast. And the way we do it is what we call the accordion strike. And I've never heard that term before, but I like it. The accordion strike is a single haul. You haul with a line while you're lifting the rod with the other hand. So i got my fly rod in my right hand, my right-hander, and I've got my stripping line in the left hand, and as I see my indicator go down or I detect a strike, I'm going to set the hook in my right hand and my left hand. So it's like opening up an accordion. He says, boom, You and he does say that. He says, boom. I think it sounded more like that. You've doubled the speed, and you've doubled the distance. And you've got to realize that it's not like a strike on a dry fly where you see it. With a nymph, by the time you see any indication, no matter how good you are, that fish has had its fly in in its mouth for a certain amount of time. He's either spit it out, or he's about to spit it out. So you can't strike too fast on a nymph. I like it. The accordion strike. Two hands, stripping with your left, raising with your right for a righty. Not discriminating against lefties. You can set with your left and strip with your right. Just like opening up an accordion. Good tip. But I like just simplifying it, saying you have to move the fly twice as far, twice as fast. I think that right there is going, yeah, you gotta move it twice, far, twice fast. I better get on it on the set. And then just explaining the uh, the delay. You know, you see an indication on the indicator, there's quite a bit of delay that it happens. Um Moving on to splurging on equipment. So splurging on equipment here. If somebody is <laughs> if somebody is going to splurge on a particular piece of equipment, what should that be? And he says Gore-Tex waiters. And not just breathable waiters, but Gore-Tex waiters. And uh the interviewer, Paul Arnold, goes on to say, as you blindsided me, I thought you'd say good rod, why'd you say waders? Uh, I'm going to paraphrase here, but LaFontaine goes on to say, uh, if there's one problem people have, it's being comfortable. I could not agree more. I think it's a great answer. Cortex waiters are great. Um, when you're hot, you don't have all that condensation, it's going to be comfortable, etc., etc., etc. So I think the the big takeaway on that for me was just being comfortable. And I try to say this all the time, and I absolutely hate reviewing and trying to sell people apparel, um, long underwear. Some guys can do it. I can't sell that stuff. I just, I can't review it. I can't advertise it. I can't do it. But it's so true all the way from your layering system, you know, from your socks, to your waders, to your boots, to, you know, what you're wearing against your skin, to your wind stopper. I think this answer really is not just about waiters. Because he says if there's one problem people have out here, it's being comfortable. To me, that's going all the way from the undies all the way on up to what you're wearing on your head for a hat. So get the stuff you like, get comfortable clothing, get good windstopper, get a Gore-Tex waiting jacket, don't be cheap, be comfortable. You're gonna have this stuff for a long, long time. Uh good gear does not go out of style. So just get the right jackets, get the right waders, get comfortable, layer up properly. Uh I we did a podcast early on. We actually talked about layering uh with one of my uh one of my, my former guides who's now works in the industry. Um but I think it's called layering for success. And it's one of the first several episodes that we did. Uh, so if you have more questions on that or any questions on that, go listen, go back and listen to that podcast with Troy and I. So I thought the Sporting on equipment was a good answer. Uh, I just think, uh, you know, this book in general, um, that's going to conclude, uh, the Gary's interviews for today. And again, I skipped quite a bit of it. I would encourage you to buy the book, read it. I think it's great. Uh, Or just keep listening to the podcast, but, uh, I hope I sell some books for these fellas. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and read. I'm going to do a different, I won't probably do every guide in the, the, the book here, but I'm definitely going to do, go through and and cherry pick all the stuff that I really learned and liked. And some of it, I still remember from when I first started guiding. And uh, I just think it's such good, wise information, uh, to have and know, so that's Wisdom of the Guides. Uh, that's pretty much going to wrap it up for today. Uh, stay tuned. Try to do one of these once a week. Uh, as always, you can uh, listen to these on the Podbean app where I'm uploading it here and uh, YouTube as well and uh, also on our blog at RedsFlyShop.com and if you're doing any shopping, I think the, uh, the, the coupon code PODCAST16 is going to be active for about three more weeks. So if you're Frequent listener, you want a coupon, get some 10% off action. Go to the store, podcast16 for your coupon. Anyway, uh, Joe Rotor Reds out. Until next time.